You're listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Kyoto. Each week I'll be discussing all aspects of class actions with the leading experts in this area. The results are just like a class action. Thought-provoking, lively, and always slightly unpredictable. Happy listening. Welcome to the podcast. We have with us today Glenn Zacabe, who is a partner at BLG, Borden Ladner Gervais in Toronto, and he's the national co-chair of the Class Actions Group there. Hi, Glenn. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Suzanne. Thank you for having me. How's pandemic life going? (laughs) Uh, Working from home is a little bit different than what I'm used to, but uh, things are going well generally. Good. Excellent. Uh, So tell us about your your practice right now and... First of all, start us with how you became a class actions lawyer and what got you there. Sure. Um, Well, as you probably know, I've been in practice about 37 years. So uh, back when I was at my last firm, uh, I I had a case that came in through an insurance company. It was about 1994 uh, and it was involving the giant plant litigation. Uh, so there was somebody who was making a claim against the physician and against the company that had imported the, the implant. Uh, and they, you know, that quickly grew into two, three, four, ultimately about 40 actions. And then, you know, at, at that point, uh, a case was started in Quebec as a class action, then Ontario as a class action. And ultimately, when BC's legislation came in, a third class action got started. And it happened to be the one I was dealing with, um, the primary counsel in Ontario were the Siskins firm. At that, that point, uh, Scott Ritchie, uh, mm-hmm. Mike Izinga, and Mike Peerless. Um, so we, we worked through that file for quite a while. Uh, it was interesting because I got to manage the file nationally for the insurer, uh, work with excellent counsel in Quebec and BC. One of the BC counsels now a judge in the, in the Supreme Court of BC. Uh, I just really enjoyed working on this file. Uh, we, it became one of the first ones or one of the first few files to get a bar order. We had a limited fund settlement, which was kind of unusual in that, in that time. We did a national settlement. Um, and so, you know, it just it kind of blossomed from there. It really kind of fell into the practice. So that was uh, back in the mid-90s. Sorry to interrupt you. You had uh, no. something else to say? So that, that was mid-90s. Yeah, yeah mid-90s. Okay. So you, you've been in since the very beginning as well. And yeah. I completely forgot we, we shared a mentor when I was uh, at Thomas Gold Pettingill. I had um, Bruce Thomas as my mentor, and he also worked with you. Is that, is that right? That's correct. Actually, Bruce hired me when I was at Castles Brock. So uh, he hired me and said at that when I started my practice there, uh, he basically said, you know, we were doing insurance, a lot of insurance defense work, and he said, you need to specialize. So I decided to specialize in product litigation. And when this file came in, it was a products file. So uh, I was assigned the file as the lead products lawyer. So hmm. it's kind of, it, things happen for a reason. Yeah, that's right. And it's a small world. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, so how have class actions changed since then? Um, well, I mean, besides the fact that we now have legislation across well, the country, true. and yeah, that's been a big change for me. Um, you know, there's, you know, I think the first turning point was when Ontario's legislation came in, because before that it was just Quebec, and Quebec was really uh, there to provide a class relief for, you know, smaller claims. It was really consumer claims largely. Mm-hmm. Then when Ontario's legislation came in, you know, we had the 
the development of the national class. And that was a fairly new th new development and, and cases in Quebec started getting larger and became more coordinated with the Ontario led the Ontario cases. And then with BC coming online, uh, you started to see more of a national coordination of cases amongst plaintiffs counsel and amongst defense counsel too. So that's, you know, the, ch the change has been an evolution. Mm. Um, the other thing I think we've seen is kind of a, what I would call a pendulum swing in the way that uh, the court has approached dealing with class actions. Uh, there was, you know, at one point it was, you know, it, there was defenses you could put forward to defeat certification and it kind of swung the other way and, you know, it kind of came back to the middle. And I think it's, I think with the trilogy of cases in the Supreme Court, uh, you know, the, the test has become not so much more lenient, but I think the judges have, you know, really looked at class actions predominantly from an access to justice perspective. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then possibly we're going to see a swing the other way now that Bill 161 has come into force. Right, it's effective as of October 1. And it's, it mm -hmm. could be a change, could be a game changer, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure. Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure it's going to change as much as everyone thinks it will be. Okay, well, we'll touch on that again later. Uh, so let me ask you, you, you talked about how class actions have uh, spread across the, across the country and how there's more of a coordination now. So that dovetails nicely into why you're here today. You're here today to talk about multi-jurisdictional class proceedings. So can you give us a brief overview of the main difficulties that arise from coordinating multi-jurisdictional class proceedings and maybe include some cases, some examples from cases you've worked on? Sure. Um, well, I mean, I look at, multi-jurisdictional cases from two perspectives. One is the cross Canada, and then the second is the north-south issue. Mm -hmm. So across the country, and we've, we've, there's been, a, I think there's popped up a few um, practitioners who kind of want to take charge and run their own cases and, and not be part of a national group. Uh, others who are more willing to work together and, and coordinate uh, across the country. So that's that can be a bit challenging when you have somebody who's not willing to you know to work with the other council and other provinces and becomes more of a competitor than mm. you know than a, a a partner so you know that that's been a bit of a challenge at, at times uh we saw that largely in the i think it was back in the days of the celebrex the cox 2 litigation and then subsequently in the in the diesel emissions litigation where one council in particular out west decided he, uh, he he got he got frozen out of Ontario as lead counsel and decided to start his own cases. He's fought with the plaintiff's counsel from Ontario as to whether or not his cases should be stayed. Uh, he then commenced a bunch of uh, group actions uh, with a view to trying to deal with those. So, you know, uh, that, that happened, you know, most recently in the last couple of years, but the, the one in the Celebrex litigation was probably seven to 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, you know, that's been a bit of a, an issue. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, and then the other, the other issue of course is, is the, you know, the, what do you do about cases that are proceeding ahead in the U S uh, and then you have an offshoot of a case here in Canada and how to manage those has been somewhat difficult because, you know, your clients are concerned about you know, their, how they're dealing with the case in the U.S. and, you know, the potential impact of a, a decision in Canada on a, on a U.S. piece of litigation. Mm -hmm. But do you find that the U.S. cases generally move more quickly than the Canadian cases? Uh, yes and no. I mean, you know, no in some ways because a lot of them go to what, what we know as the, the multi-district litigation procedure. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and in that procedure, well, generally in class action in the United States, there's more merits-based uh, examination at the start of the litigation. So you'll have a lot of pre-certification discovery uh, that takes place that can really slow the litigation down. Often there's some pre-certification motions to strike or motions for judgment uh, that are slowing the case down. And, and you know, obviously the pandemic has not helped in terms mm -hmm. of uh, having cases proceed ahead. But but that's that's been a bit of a challenge because there's times when those cases seem to be taking a little bit more time than you know than a Canadian case would take to get to the certification stage. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's largely because of the extent of the discovery and the extent of these pre-certification motions that largely we haven't been able to do. Mm. And just to follow up to that then, do you, do you find that the, the cross-jurisdictional and uh, multi-jurisdictional in Canada national class actions sort of outweigh now the more, in, the more sort of local provincial actions? In your experience? Yeah, let's see, we're seeing more cases, you know, being brought on a national basis. Mm -hmm. I mean, Quebec still, Quebec still will focus a lot on individual, sort of on the, on the focusing on Quebec-centric cases, but mm -hmm. um, even Quebec has certified national classes. So, uh, you know, we, we do see those uh, all the time, and I'm seeing more and more cases that are, you know, offshoots of, of U.S. cases or cases where there's, you know, we're going to be dealing with stuff across the country. And, you know, more than one case is filed in one province and often cases are filed in three to four to five provinces. Mm -hmm. So then how have the difficulties in multi-jurisdictional class actions been overcome to date? Um, I guess two ways. One is the, uh, you know, the Canadian Bar Association protocols that have mm -hmm. come into play and the courts have largely adopted those. Um, and, and that allows judges to, you know, to communicate and sit together, coordinate uh, certification, settlement approval, emotions in different provinces, and that's solved some of that. Mm -hmm. And then largely, I think the, the, the bar is, you know, it's it's not a large bar mm -hmm. that does uh, class action work on the plaintiff's side or even on the defense side. And, you know, I think there's, you know, there's a recognition that it's in part, it's a business and there's a need to, you know, put your money in the best possible way to use it efficiently um, and you know not not unnecessarily run up costs and it's probably in a lot of ways for many plaintiffs lawyers better to coordinate with one another than to fight mm -hmm. um, you know it's the I think Justice Perel called you know watching a carriage motion uh, something like you know it, it was entertainment for the defense side and I don't find it that way but you know I think uh, it's, it's not the most pleasant thing to see uh, plaintiff's lawyers fighting amongst each other uh, because they're all very ca talented counsel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it doesn't look good for the profession or for the, no. or for the practice. Uh, so the, the National Registry on Class Actions, which uh, I know Bill 161 has, has uh, incorporated as a requirement um, mm -hmm. at the certification stage. So has that, uh, so far, have... Have counsel consistently registered their cases on that database, or is it kind of patchy? I, I think it's becoming more. The, it's the norm now. I mm -hmm. think with the, with the protocols now in place, plaintiffs' counsel do register their cases. There was a time, a number of years ago, and I remember chairing a panel where uh, one of the audience members asked why this one particular law firm didn't file their cases with. Uh, the Canadian Bar Association database, and he's, his answer was, well, what's good for some law firms isn't good for my law firm. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and I think that attitude has since changed. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I, we do see more of it. And frankly, I, we've had a case recently where, you know, we've advised the court and the plaintiff's lawyers of other existing actions we know about. And, you know, they've taken that into account and how they're how they're dealing with the case. Mm -hmm. I suppose, so I, sorry. I think it's been a real help. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's good. The only t issue is the timing to get a case put into the registry and then actually show up on the registry. There's been a bit of a lag there. How long is the lag? Uh, I understand it's you know can be up to a month, but no. you know I haven't really. You know, it's hard to tell because we don't we don't file the cases. Mm -hmm. It's it's the plaintiff's bar who files them, and they would know when they send it in and how long it takes. But there has been a lag from time to time getting the cases actually on the database. Mm -hmm. So do you think the changes uh, in Bill One Sixty One will the registry and all the other changes regarding multi jurisdictional class actions? Will they address those difficulties that we've talked about so far? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I think to some extent, it, all it really is doing is putting into legislation what we already are dealing with in, mm -hmm. the, in the Bar Association protocol. So um, it's not going to adjust the difficulties of the existence of multi-jurisdictional cases, but you know, it will at least require on you know judges here in Ontario to, to consider the existence of other actions as part of a preferability test. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so in the, that's essentially what I, I think those changes will do. But uh, you know, I, I don't think it, it creates anything new, particularly for, for multi-jurisdictional cases otherwise. Mm -hmm. In that case, what, what changes would you put in to, to address this problem of, I've heard it called jurisdictional whack-a-mole, that the defendants mm -hmm. face, you know, the class actions popping up across the country. How, how would you address that problem? Or is there no real solution? Oh, I, I think there's always a solution. I think creativity of the courts is, is important, and mm -hmm. our courts are creative. I think plaintiffs' counsel are creative, defense counsel are creative. Um, you know, I think there's a way to have uh, some of these cases case managed before a court uh, and the judges review, you know, between themselves which actions should proceed and which ones should be stayed. And, you know, it's really a question of allocating judicial resources because mm -hmm. it's, you know, the, the courts are under a lot of pressure. Uh, so I think if a court can say, well, it makes more sense to stay one case here and let the more advanced case proceed in another jurisdiction, uh, I think our judges across the country are open to that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously, the best solution would be having something akin to what they have in the U.S., which is the, the multi-district litigation solution. But, uh, you know, you have multiple actions in different jurisdictions all consolidated into one heard by a panel of judges uh, from different jurisdiction, but it's in one court. Mm -hmm. uh, our, our problem, of course, is, you know, our constitutional challenges mm -hmm. with that. But I mean, um, do, do you think we could set up something in the federal court that would, or would that, I mean, federal court has its own constraints on its jurisdiction. So. That's the problem, yeah. Mm -hmm. The federal court's jurisdiction under the Constitution does not, does not give it the, the jurisdiction to hear all these, many of these civil cases. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, do you think all the provinces are showing that same spirit of comity and cooperation that's required in order to coordinate multi-jurisdictional cases? I, I think you're seeing it more and more, and there's mm -hmm. more of this recognition since the Canadian... But don't, remember that the judges, there were judges across the country that sat on the Canadian Bar Association panel that put together the protocols. And so, you know, uh, our courts generally... I know the court here in Ontario has adopted the protocols and now will be effectively legislated into dealing with them. Mm 
but you know you do see it and you see it from other provinces i know i've seen decisions from alberta where the courts considered what's going on in another province and uh, i think our, our courts generally are you know are more open to looking at uh, managing these cases in a way that makes them more efficient uh, and also you know doesn't constrain the, the legal system And, you know, I think if there's certainly, I, I, we've seen it, I think, particularly between Quebec and Ontario, where there seems to be a bit of the tug of war going on to right. some extent. If a case is more advanced in Quebec, judges, I understand there, and I, I may be wrong, but it, my, my understanding is that the judges there, if they see their case more advanced, are more reluctant to uh, delay a case in Quebec in favor of Ontario. And I think the courts in Ontario are also giving that some consideration. Um, or you know, unless the parties are willing to say, okay, well, we'll, we'll separate out the class for Quebec and separate out the class for Ontario and the rest of Canada, if it happens to be a national class, mm -hmm. and then let the t cases proceed on their own track. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, other than that, I, I think we are seeing some, some willingness and certainly where parties are in agreement and can convince the court that it's more appropriate to let one case go ahead, the courts are open to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Quebec's a little bit of an outlier, isn't it? Because um, was it a few years ago the changes were made um, to, the, uh, to the rules there that basically said if, uh, what is it, just because there's a multi-jurisdictional, uh, there's a proceeding going on in another province is not a reason to stay the Quebec class action, is essentially the paraphrase. That. Yeah, that's, that's true. Mm. I mean, that, yeah, that's, that's generally the position taken. And, and courts in Quebec are also concerned about making sure that citizens of their province are protected mm -hmm. and you know that their interests are being looked after because there are some you know being a civil law province there are some particularly in the consumer protection area mm -hmm. uh, you know specific provisions of their consumer protection legislation that isn't necessarily the same as in the common law provinces mm -hmm. and uh, you know, so the courts there are somewhat protective of their jurisdiction because of you know the, the differences in Quebec law versus common law. And following on from that, now that Ontario's preferable procedure criterion is arguably more strict, do you think Quebec is going to have a harder time deferring to Ontario, given that they don't even have a preferable procedure requirement there? It may be a factor. Uh, I, you know, I don't really know. We'll see. We'll see how courts in Ontario apply the preferable procedure test. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean. I think I know. I think Mike Izinga commented on this as well, that you know, preferable procedure has been a test, or you know, predominance into preferable procedure has been a test out in BC for years, and yet, uh, you know, we tend to apply the law the same across the country, mm -hmm. in terms of the common law uh, jurisdictions. So you know, it's it's hard to say at this point how a court is going to look at the preferable procedure requirements under the new legislation or the changes to, to the Class Proceedings Act. And, you know, will it make it far more strict? Uh, possibly. It depends on, you know, how the judge perceives the test to be and how the courts ultimately interpret the test. Mm -hmm. uh, but as you know, it, it, you know, it, it's going to take some, some trial and error and some cases going forward and probably challenges to the appeal courts and to see how this is going to, how it plays itself out. Mm -hmm. It's going to kick up the mud, I think, a little bit for a few years. <laughs> so, uh, it will, for sure. Create more work for all of us. So uh, in terms of, so even if the approach isn't more restrictive under the new um, legislation or the new changes, 
there's arguably a perception that it will be more restrictive. So do you think that will result in, uh, first of all, fewer class actions being brought in Ontario, and secondly, fewer findings that an Ontario class action is the preferable procedure at the certification stage? Hmm, okay. Um, will there be fewer classes brought in Ontario? I, I think there has been some perception that, uh, you know, cases are going to be driven out west to British Columbia. Mm. I, I, I don't believe in the sky is falling approach. I mean, I don't think the plaintiff's bar generally is going to take that view. I think, you know, plaintiff's counsel choose their cases generally. They choose them very carefully. Mm -hmm. And so if it's a case that should be brought and the proper jurisdiction is Ontario, they'll bring it here. Um, obviously, we've seen a flurry of new cases being filed in part because of our current pandemic and the fallout from that, but also, you know, potentially because of the pending implementation of the legislation, because it, it will not be applicable to cases filed before October 1. Um, so in my view, I, I really don't see it as being a, a, a piece of a change to the legislation that's literally going to drive cases out of this province. It just may mean people are being far more careful about how they choose their cases, how they present them, um, you know, how they bring them forward to the court and and argue the certification test. Uh, but you know, it, it's we, we still have to go through and argue the certification test, regardless of whether you settle, regardless of whether you fight it. Mm -hmm. So you still have to satisfy all the criteria, and you know, good plaintiffs' counsel are capable of doing that. And it gives us an opportunity as defense counsel to to challenge some of the, the you know, some of the, the arguments that are being made. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I've always thought that there, there are better ways and sometimes to deal with a case than going by way of a class action. Mm -hmm. uh, because, as you know, it's simply a procedural step in a piece of litigation. Uh, and you know, you could bring a group action, you could bring other individual cases, because some of these cases are individually large enough to bring uh, as a, either a test case or an individual case. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're not, you know, spending the time uh, going through all the steps of the certification procedure, when you could actually be advancing the issues of the litigation. So there may be more uh, scrutiny over whether you bring a case as a class action or not going forward, but I, I don't think it's going to really change uh, whether we have class actions or how many are brought in Ontario overall. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of whether it, you know, it becomes a challenge uh, in terms of dealing whether, you know, Ontario, another court will defer to Ontario or, you know, or allow a case to proceed in Ontario under this new test. Um, I think the judges are going to still look at it from the same perspective, whether or not the case is advancing appropriately and are we still using judicial resources accordingly and is there still access to justice? Mm -hmm. So we might just see a change in the type of cases that are brought in Ontario. Possibly. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. Or at least the, you know, the, uh, a little more, perhaps a little more scrutiny in some instances instead of, you know, there are cases that frankly get filed and, Ultimately, you turn around and plaintiffs' counsel realize they're not not what they thought they were and have to withdraw them. But um, you know, there are, and I, I do think that you know plaintiffs' counsel generally here do change. They do choose their cases carefully. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's it's not that I don't think cases are being carefully chosen. It's sometimes it may just not be the right case 
for certification and that that is not a that's not a, a comment on the quality of the of the litigation or the quality of the case that's being brought mm -hmm. uh, and do you think the uh, so we talked about multi-jurisdictional cases across canada what about international cases i mean has that been a big part of your practice so taking courts taking jurisdiction over international class members uh, I, you know, I, obviously I've seen it. It's, it's, I've not had to, I've not had that much, uh, many of my cases have been mostly, you know, Canada wide mm -hmm. as opposed to, uh, taking charge internationally. Certainly some of the class definitions we've seen, uh, in the initial drafting of a pleading, uh, are beyond the borders of Canada and, uh, that often gets paired back, mm -hmm. but it, you know, I think there are times when, you know, there, there will be. You know, I've got current a current case now uh, that I can't really comment on, but you know, it does the the class definitions currently proposed would uh, potentially, you know, take jurisdiction over people in the United States. Um, you know, I've seen it the other way, frankly, where a U.S. court has uh, taken jurisdiction over Canadians, and our court here has has it's been challenged here. Mm -hmm. And you may recall the case involving uh, a contest. Over one of the fast food chains. Yeah, the, can we say the McDonald's case? I think. Yes, the, the Parsons and McDonald's <laughs> yes, litigation, yeah, yeah. and I was involved in that case. Uh, the U.S. court, at the time of settlement, uh, was asked to include a, a class that would encompass Canada and other jurisdictions. Uh, a, a competitive case was brought here. Uh, plaintiffs' counsel challenged it, and our courts found that uh, they were not going to enforce a U.S. settlement in Canada, largely because they felt that the notice was not adequate that was given out of the U.S. proceeding mm -hmm. uh, to apply to Canadians. And so fairness and natural justice had not uh, had not been performed here for Canada. Uh, but, you know, that's that's an example of one where I have seen it attempt to be applied. And I think if the if the notice had been far more robust and more uh, had given Canadians an opportunity to fairly participate in a U.S. settlement, I think our court here may have given it a different view. Hmm. So now that, um, I mean, it's already part of the common law, but also with the changes that notice has to be plain language and there are different ways of distributing notice. Do you think those kinds of issues are, are going to be easier to overcome? I mean, I, the courts have already applied a great deal of scrutiny to, to notices anyways, but I, I think, you know, I think it's helpful to always have a plain language notice that, that is, uh, you know, more understandable. I, I think a good friend of mine told me years ago that the test he always used for objectivity in a notice was whether or not if you picked up the Saturday newspaper and read the, you know, the notice in the newspaper, whether you could say you were part of the class or not part of a class. Mm -hmm. And so that was always the sort of the litmus test in terms of whether or not a class definition was appropriate, whether the notice was adequate. Uh, adequacy of notice obviously goes to scope and, and, and reach and frequency, but as you know, but uh, I think our courts are being uh, creative. I think mm -hmm. notice experts are being more creative in terms of helping us evaluate where the best, uh, the best methods by which to give notice to, to class members, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's through social media, I think frankly, you know, Print advertising has been uh, has been the norm for many years, and I think that's falling aside to some extent. We we'll still use print advertising, but perhaps not as extensively as we did, you know, 15, 10, even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and social media has become more the platform that is used to, you know, to give notice to class members, typically Facebook or other, you know, pop up ads and in, in on websites uh, that people will frequent that happen to be related to the potential, you know, issues in the litigation. Mm -hmm. So I'm seeing more of that certainly recommend recommended by notice experts. These days, yes, email as opposed to, you know, direct mail, although if you have the ability to give direct mail notice, it's still going out as direct mail as mm -hmm. well as email mm -hmm. as a backup. Yeah, I think it's probably best to have both because a lot of people think that the email is spam. So it's that's that's another difficulty this and there's so much right. email coming in these days as well. So uh, so back to the issue of um, council in the is certain council in the West of Canada sort of bringing <laughs> duplicative proceedings or parking proceedings right. or just uh, making themselves generally a nuisance. Uh, I mean, there's been a lot of abuse of process motions brought, or type motions brought against uh, that particular council, and they don't always seem to have worked. So what is the issue there? Is the court just sort of giving them a chance? Or, uh, I mean, that, that would seem to be the ideal way of sort of getting rid of the more kind of, I guess, maybe not frivolous and vexatious, but close to that uh, steps that council are taking. What, what do you think of that? I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call it frivolous and vexatious, but I mean, I, I think there are there are challenges that uh, have come up because of these, you know, these other actions being filed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to some extent, the courts in those Western provinces, when they're being asked to, to call a proceeding an abusive process, it's a tough test. It's, you have to really, you know, it's a tough test to meet. And, mm. you know, I think some of the challenges have been made by uh, plaintiff's counsel and other jurisdictions, you know, dealing with this, you know, a case or two out West, um, you know, where, and I think the, the issue largely has become one of, you know, if that same counsel or same law firm brings an action here in Ontario and loses carriage and then files something out West, um, it's been hit and miss whether or not that's been, you know, stayed or, or deemed to be a problem. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think the courts there are sort of saying, well, you know, you know, Ontario is not the only place to bring class actions. Right. And I think that's, that's a fair comment. I mean, you know, if there are definitely, uh, you know, connectors, connecting factors in another province that make it a more appropriate place to bring the case, uh, I think a court there is not going to be willing necessarily to stay in action. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and so uh, we're coming to the end of our questions now. I, mm -hmm. I guess what I'd ask you is, you know, you've been in the practice area for 37 years, I believe mm -hmm. is what you said. What advice would you give to young counsel trying to get into this area? Uh, I would say this is not an area to go into right off the bat. I mean, I, I think this is, you know, I, I learned, you know, how to, to do litigation long before class actions were ever, you know, available in Ontario. I mean, I was in practice, oh, at least 11, 12 years before class actions, you know, it was class action legislation. And so I, I learned to litigate, you know, in a day when, uh, you know, you were doing a lot of discovery, a lot of motions, uh, you know, appearing in court, uh, getting some trials. We don't get as many trials today as we used to, but, mm -hmm. you know, back in the, when I started in practice, trials were quite common and, you know, uh, cutting your teeth on, you know, 
learning the litigation basic skills is really important. I also think it's important to appreciate that, you know, uh, you're members of a profession and, you know, members of a profession should respect each other. And, you know, this is not an issue of just how do you beat the other person? It's learning how to, you know, how to develop a reputation. And, and uh, I think all that comes long before you can, you know, step into doing class actions. Class actions are procedurally a different animal to mm -hmm. some extent, but I, you know, I think I'm on the same wavelength as Mike Izinga. This is not, I wouldn't go right into doing class actions from the very start. You should learn how to do litigation, learn how to, you know, appear before courts, understand how to bring motions because, you know, you are bringing motions in doing class actions. You're going to bring some pre-certification motions. You have to, you know, do case conferences uh, and, you know, have an appropriate game plan or a strategy to mm -hmm. deal with the case and be able to work with the other side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are the opposite side of your case, but they are still, you know, counsel and you, you know, you owe them respect and hopefully they should do the same thing to you. And you treat each other with, uh, you know, with that kind of respect as you go forward. And, and you know, there, is, there needs to be some level of cooperation. Mm -hmm. It's not just all about fighting. Um, so I, I really would advise young lawyers to learn how to be litigators first and then, you know, uh, slowly work your way into doing class actions. Mm -hmm. Okay. And do you think that the face of litigation or the, the nature of litigation is going to change because of COVID? Or do you think we're going to proceed as we did before, just with different tools for doing our trade? The, you know, I, obviously COVID has had an impact on the way we way we litigate i think you know unless I, there's going to be a point where we do return to some form of normal mm -hmm. um but i you know i think people are becoming more used to the idea of doing you know virtual discoveries um obviously clients are you know, are concerned about costs and so uh you know if you could do something in a virtual setting as opposed to having to travel somewhere um you know, that's, that's obviously a potential for cost savings. Mm -hmm. So I think we'll see more of that. Uh, whether you could actually do an argument virtually, there have been some. Um, you know, I've been recently involved in, uh, involved in a matter currently where we need to go to another province mm -hmm. to do the argument. Uh, unfortunately, that province is part of a bubble. Oh, so out east. Out east. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the court there uh, needs to have us appear before it because it's a very complex argument with a lot of evidence and a lot of material. And, you know, to take a three-day hearing in person and try and do it virtually could mm -hmm. be a five-day hearing mm -hmm. just because it's so taxing on the court and taxing on the judge to try and go, you know, work with us and deal with, you know, all the, the exhibits that need to be reviewed. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, plaintiff's counsel out there was concerned and potentially legitimately concerned about somebody coming from a province that has more cases than they do of COVID. And so the court took all that into account and adjourned our, our hearing. And now I've since found out that the court or so that the province is taking a more restrictive view of allowing uh, lawyers from other provinces to come into the bubble and would require us to quarantine for 14 days. Oh, wow. And that's just not feasible. No. So mm -hmm. whether that ultimately means we'll have to wait out, uh, you know, the, the lifting of the bubble or, 
or have to argue it virtually is still you know up in the air but i am concerned about arguing a case virtually that really shouldn't be argued virtually mm. so for simpler cases i guess it's made your job somewhat easier and for more complex cases it's made it harder it i think like harder for, you know it's harder for the court too and it's mm -hmm. you know it's not just the lawyers it's the court yeah okay well i think that's all of my questions glenn did you have anything else to add before we sign off uh, well, one, obviously, I wanted to welcome you back to Canada. And it's nice much. to have you back here uh, and to thank you for the opportunity to, to have this conversation with you today. It's, you know, it's I've been really fortunate, I have to say, that you know, over the course of my career, I've been able to have great mentors, Bruce Thomas being one of mm -hmm. them. Uh, another mentor uh, after Bruce moved to the Thomas Gold Pettengill firm was Phil Spencer, who came from the Blaine McMurtry firm. Mm -hmm also a great mentor. So I, I've been really fortunate. I think it's important for young lawyers to seek out a, a good mentor uh, and learn from that mentor. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's some advice. If I can pass that on to younger lawyers, that, that would be something I definitely would encourage. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's great to be able to come in and I'd love to come in and, and do a class action, uh, you know, session with, with the university. I've done that on a few occasions. My partner, Tim Pinos, uh, who is still at Castle's, uh, he, you know, he and I did a lot of class actions together. He, he was involved in teaching uh, civil litigation and did a lot of te teaching class actions. And it's an enjoyable thing for us to do as practitioners. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully, enjoyable for for the students. Um, so it's something you know we do enjoy dealing with, and, and uh, you know I encourage that. I think it's I think I, when I was going through bar admission course, I felt I learned a lot from the practitioners who came in and lectured us on you know, how to actually practice law. Mm. Uh, and so that's, you know, it, it's it's different than just learning theory in law school. Yeah, of course. There's a practicality that, that's required when you when you practice. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, so hopefully when seek things, out the mentors. Yes, and hopefully when things get a bit more back to normal and we're more sort of uh, in person on campus, then uh, then I'll be able to have you in. Yes. But for now, this is, the, this is the best we have. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Glenn. And, it's been uh, a pleasure. Thank you very much, and I hope you have a great I, day. Thank you, you too. Okay, all the best. Bye. All the best. Yep, yeah, bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Certified, Canada's class actions podcast, hosted and produced by Suzanne Kyoto. Graphic design is by Suzanne Kyoto and Rob Haskins, and the music is by Scott Holmes at freemusicarchive.org. Website and distribution are courtesy of Simplecast. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. You can also visit the show's website, certified.simplecast.com, where you can subscribe in iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify, or by RSS. You can also find announcements about the show on my Twitter account, Kyoto Accord. Till next time, stay safe and stay classy. <laughs>